0: Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur podcast for Friday, October the 16th. Coming up, we'll talk about minor hockey in the province during the pandemic. Is Ontario on the brink of another long-term care disaster? And the use of DNA testing that led to the end of the cold case of the murder of nine-year-old Christine Jessup. All that coming up right now on the Jeff MacArthur podcast. In breaking news on this Friday afternoon, it is Modified Stage 2 for York Region starting Monday. Restrictions are being reintroduced in York Region for 28 days because of the uh, rapid increase in cases in York Region. We'll have uh, more on this uh, coming up. But as uh, COVID numbers continue to spike, there has been a concern over a couple of events on the calendar. Uh, One, of course, is Halloween. And the other that also starts with an H is hockey in particular, minor hockey. And there's been a debate brewing about kids and hockey and just how safe is minor hockey in the midst of a pandemic. Joining us now is Ian Taylor. He is the CEO of the OMHA, the Ontario Minor Hockey Association, and he joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Ian, good afternoon. Thanks for your time on this Friday.
1: Likewise, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, Currently, where does the OMHA stand when it comes to the safety of uh, minor hockey right now, Ian?
1: Well, a great question, and uh, really, it's um, it's first and, and foremost. It's it certainly is our our priority as we have um, as we've come back to hockey or, or returned to hockey, as we call it, and uh, um, that that is you know shown itself in a number of ways, from from number of players on the ice um, to uh, um, what would be transitioning into into modified gameplay. So so if you can imagine it, hockey without. With, with trying to keep uh, physical distancing. So so by reducing numbers, three-on-three, four-on-four, uh, as opposed to traditional five-on-five, five, smaller rosters, um, and certainly um, a lot of work with our associations um, regarding protocols um, uh, in, in terms of uh, how you enter a facility, how you exit a facility, um, um, players coming dressed to the rink, um, limiting their time, um, you know, in the rink, off the ice, um, and, and keeping, obviously, physical distancing a, a priority. So so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of different elements in there, but but safety is foremost for sure.
0: Yeah, what sort of discussions have you and your executive been having? Have you been liaisoning with medical officials, getting their advice uh, when it comes to uh, player safety?
1: Uh, absolutely, and and really, this is uh, you know since since March twelfth, when when Meyer Hockey closed um, uh, last season, um, we've worked with uh, with Hockey Canada as well as our uh, provincial sport organization, uh, Ontario Hockey Federation, um, uh, essentially working through that that whole process, and and we um, we, we allowed return to hockey to start um, September first, and. And with the late Labor Day um, weekend, uh, most associations started, uh, started after that, that weekend. And, and in fact, we, because we're such a large uh, organization, we had a number of associations just, just getting back onto the ice um, after Thanksgiving here. So, um, so th- you know, that, that dialogue has been, has been um, uh, like I say, everything from, um, um, you know, what hockey could look like, how can we do it safely... Um, and, and, uh, and, again, um, you know, allow kids to get back to being active, allow them to be um, social, obviously, with, with their friends, and, and, and the whole mental health aspect has been talked a lot about being um, quarantined for, for so long. Um, but, but, again, that's, as I say, that's, uh, that's secondary to being able to, to come and participate uh, safely.
0: Yeah, is it finding that balance, trying to strike a balance between what is uh, physical uh, health, uh, keeping players uh, healthy and uh, safe from uh, COVID-19, and you're absolutely right, the mental health aspect about being kind of locked down again, and hockey means so much to so many of us in this country, and in particular uh, kids, and helping them remain uh, not only uh, active, but as you mentioned a second ago, uh, social with uh, friends and teammates.
1: It's it's such a huge... Uh, it, it's it's really amazing how much that came to um, to the forefront um, as we as through the summer we, we kind of work through this and and coming into uh, you know into the fall um, how much um, uh, again we, we always obviously you know young kids um, you want them to be active that's that's a that's a key part of you know um, again their, their overall well-being um, but but really that that component of of again, um, not being able to see their friends, not being able to engage, not being able to socialize—you you, know—really, really came to the forefront. Um, but, but again, as you say, that's um, as important as that is. Uh, your point about striking a balance—that's a great, it's a great way to say it. Um, that's 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 obviously got to be got to be top of mind. And I and I can you know I can tell you um, you know we have we have a large scope of of uh, uh kind of reactions to that we have we have people that are hesitant obviously um, um to come back they wanted to see how how school would go um how how uh, um what kind of protocols we did have in place so so you know um i, I guess kind of a wait and see approach and and then you have you, you know you have another group very much like early adopters who who you know as soon as you could say we're back you know they wanted to go back 100 miles an hour so um so it's it's quite a it's quite a scope there, so finding that balance is uh, is crucial for sure,
0: yeah, Ian, is the hard truth when it comes to minor hockey that there is always going to be a risk associated with the uh, Covid nineteen as long as we don't have a vaccine because as much as we put protocols in place and uh, try to ensure the uh, health and safety of uh, not only the kids but the parents. I mean, there's going to be a risk there. Particularly, I'm thinking if you're coming off a shift and you're on the bench and you're huffing and you're puffing and you're sweating and you're next to teammates.
1: Sure, sure. It's 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 definitely um, it's definitely a consideration in, in terms of our overall um, you know return to hockey plan. And and, and our plan started um, with, uh, with with with. Um, uh, you know, restrictions in terms of how many people could participate. In, and, and uh, you know, that started with as few as 10 people um, being allowed to participate on ice, physical distancing, on the ice, off the ice. And, and then it's progressed um, to where we could put more more players on the ice again in, in development situations, practices, ensuring um, really, really focusing on individual skills and, and so we can keep the players um, um you know distance um, in some way when we get into the modified gameplay that's where the limited number of, of people of players participating come in the reduced number on the bench so so for um, so for our modified gameplay there would be a maximum of, of 10 players um, participating on each team so 10, 10, 10 versus 10 and that would allow um, allow spacing on the bench so we could maintain physical distancing on the bench and that's one of the reasons why we reduce those uh, those roster numbers but but yeah, diligence is 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 crucial um we we um our volunteers volunteer coaches and and uh, um trainers our, our uh, minor hockey volunteers they've been um you know absolutely critical and crucial in uh, um taking the information taking the protocols and and ultimately putting them in, into place and and, again, um, doing all the same things that we're seeing in, in whether it's school or businesses with regards to, um, um, you know, health screening before you come in, every time you, you – you, before you come to the rink – um you know participating in that or, or completing that and then
0: yeah are those protocols sort of interrupting but those protocols are they up to the individual associations is this just no. a recommendation by you the Ontario Minor Hockey Association and what's going on in Toronto might be different what's happening I don't know with minor hockey in North Bay
1: no we're we're um we're, we're working we use the protocols uh, that have been passed through the um through the Ontario government to our provincial sport organization, the Ontario Hockey Federation. So, so there actually is consistency, which is um, um, again um, crucial because because we're all operating under that that same um, same protocol.
0: And uh, could you see maybe uh, striking a compromise here that we want to keep kids active and on the ice? Because I've heard of some associations doing kind of quote-unquote skills and drills, that it's just uh, practices and, uh, you know, keeping the kids active on the ice and helping them work on their skills until it is safe to go back to a game situation?
1: Yeah, we've we've had a number, and and that was our our starting point. We've had a number of associations that have decided we're going to we're going to continue with that development um, mindset or that development program model, and and again, just focus on individual skills, not go into a a, a gameplay model. And uh, in fact, that's um, with the, with the change uh, with the changes imposed last week to to Peel. We have a couple of associations in Peel, Brampton, and Caledon, and then uh, and then obviously York um, announced today those. Those organizations won't be able to participate in games, and and they'll go back to a, a a practice or development phase model as well.
0: All right, Ian. Well, certainly a lot of information to go through, and I know a lot of parents have got questions, and of course uh, their kids are uh, eager to uh, play hockey. I can just think back to when I was ten or eleven, and this was the time of year. Could hardly wait to get back uh, out there and uh, on the ice. And I know it's a tough situation for uh, all involved. Thanks so much for your time and for the update.
1: Well, well, thanks thanks for your interest, Jeff. Really appreciate it.
0: All right. We'll talk down the road, no doubt. Ian Taylor is the CEO of the Ontario Minor Hockey Association. Well, concern once again, building for LTC homes and our seniors, one of the most, of course, vulnerable groups when it comes to COVID-19. In fact, as the numbers rise, some believe that we are doomed to repeat recent history. And joining us now is Dr. Ahmed Arya. He's a physician who specializes in long-term care, And he joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon.
2: Good afternoon, Jeff.
0: Okay, I was looking at your Twitter a few hours ago. You said, it terrifies me to see rising numbers of COVID-19 in LTC residents. What specifically, doctor, has got you terrified?
2: So I'm, I'm a palliative care specialist who works um, in long-term care facilities quite commonly, and I've been on the front lines of COVID-19 in long-term care facilities. I've sort of seen homes with over 100 cases of COVID-19, and I've seen you know the great devastation and suffering that the virus brings. Uh, you know, To be very honest, I've been the one calling the families to even report that their loved one was actively dying and sick. And even for me, as a health worker, it was so traumatic, I mean, I wish I could have done so much more, and I don't ever want to see it again.
0: But are we on the precipice of seeing it again? Do you think that uh, we are doomed to repeat uh, recent history here?
2: Well, I'm very scared, um, you know, that, that, that that could definitely be the case. I mean, as of today, we have 72 homes in the province in outbreak um we have 158 residents that are affected and this is a virus that is deadly in these long-term care facilities with a case fatality rate of 36 percent and our province simply did not do enough over the summer to learn from the lessons of wave one and address the critical issues that needed to be taken care of we were promised an iron ring we were promised transparency we were promised staffing and and once again there has been no real action on any of those things.
0: And from what I understand, the numbers right now when it comes to long-term care, doctor, very similar to what we saw in April, and of course we all know sadly what happened in May and June in the following months, and if we've got those similar numbers and we haven't done enough or changed things in the interim, uh, again that is the, the recipe it would seem for disaster.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, as well as many other frontline health workers, infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists, and so on, where we share similar fears. And we know that part of this is related to an over-reliance on the testing numbers and the case numbers that we're hearing every day, and those numbers are an underestimate. You know, ever since the province moved to online um, appointment booking, um, we know that we're not actually seeing the real number of cases. And then, plus, there is a delay due to the course of the disease for the for the, these numbers to shift to hospitalizations and to affect older people in long-term care. There's similarly a delay for us to see shift from health workers to the residents.
0: You mentioned the term iron ring a second ago, and that's a very strong term, and that's something the premier uh, invoked uh, several times uh, during wave one of uh, COVID when it came to long-term care. As somebody who's been there on the ground, on the front lines, what does an Hmm. iron ring, what what does that mean to you?
2: Well, first of all, it means that we look at staffing in these long-term care facilities conditions of work determine the conditions of care how we treat the health workers and you know really the staffing ratios how many health workers are on site will determine how you know the residents are treated and the government needs to do everything they can to get more trained staff into these homes and you know our listeners may be quite shocked to even hear that at this time the health workers still don't have sick leave and there are temporary agency workers actually moving between homes and we can all sort of tell that, of course, that would increase the risk of COVID-19 in these homes and cause and, you know, put us at great risk of the devastation and harm that occurred for wave one.
0: Yeah, can I just stop you there for a second and get some clarification on that? Because we understood that there was no more movement between homes when it came to workers. Is that just PSWs, personal support workers? Are these a different type of worker?
2: Yeah, so there, there was a directive that came out in mid-April, which really said that, you know, you're right, that long-term care staff have to, move in, have to work only in one home. But the media and many advocates and coalitions and experts and so on sort of uh, talked about this shortly after as a giant loophole, where once again, temporary agency workers that cost the homes less money... Um, do not fall under this directive and can move around from home to home. And I'm hearing from different areas in the province that this is still happening. The government is actually not even tracking how often that this is happening. And of course, it shouldn't be happening under any circumstance.
0: We know that uh, money was announced, uh, quite a bit of money actually, uh, not too long ago for personal support workers to uh, up their wages and salaries so they wouldn't have to go from uh, home to home to make a a living, and also a commitment to hire more PSWs, but has that come in your estimation, do you think, uh, Dr. Arya, too late?
2: Well, yeah, absolutely, there's a timing issue, where if we compare to Quebec, which had a a a similar disaster in wave one and a similar humanitarian crisis with the military in the homes and so on. I mean, Quebec acted at at the end of May where they hired 10,000 PSWs Uh, called orderlies in that province, made sure they would only be working in one home, and also put in a manager on behalf of the provincial government in each of the homes to ensure that the response to COVID-19 would be coordinated. Uh, In comparison, um, as you mentioned, I mean, our province's response has just come very recently. I mean, PSWs uh, are reporting, or like, you know, frontline health workers are reporting that staffing shortages are 30 or 50% less than where we used to be even before the pandemic. They didn't reinstitute pandemic pay um, and really gave a temporary wage increase of six months only. And the estimate is is that this will kind of bridge a gap of only one point seven or around two percent more staff when we're thirty to fifty percent under. And this is on top of a background of, uh, you know, um, a healthcare sector and particular health workers like PSWs, which have a very high rate of attrition. Fifty percent of PSWs leave healthcare within five years, and forty-three percent abandon the sector due to burnout.
0: Do we know how involved a government is when it comes to regulations and making sure that they are being uh, followed? I mean, there was, uh, as we know, a cutback when it came to uh, inspectors for long-term care homes uh, Mm. pre-pandemic. There was certainly a lot of discussion and concern about that uh, during the uh, first wave. And, of course, as you well know, Dr. Arya, disproportionately, it was those private long-term care facilities that seemed to get get hit rather than the the publicly funded or owned ones. Uh, Is government involved enough uh, on the, the ground floor, as it were?
2: So absolutely not. And, um, you know, you're very, you're, I mean, I appreciate you bringing up this, you know, this issue of inspections, Jeff. I mean, once again, inspections were rolled back by the current government before the pandemic. And let's be honest, what power do these inspections actually have to help? I mean, Orchard Villa, which has been in the media quite a bit and had a huge COVID-19 outbreak resulting in many deaths in wave one, had 148 violations in five years. Extended Care West End Villa in Ottawa, which we're hearing about now in wave two, had ongoing inspections in July. So we're seeing the tragic outcome and simply even having inspections with no power to actually penalize the, you know, the ownership or the operator and no power to take away the license of the operator and do everything possible to protect the well-being and safety of the residents is of no use, is of no use. And absolutely for-profit homes and that system is more to blame.
0: Just finally, uh, having said that, uh, what is the morale like inside long-term care facilities uh, right now, and what is the uh, level of concern amongst uh, staff uh, when it comes to the second wave and what we might be seeing in the coming weeks?
2: So there's a lot of fear, and, you know, once again, I would like to remind the listeners that, I mean, um, you know, there was once again a complete humanitarian crisis uh, for wave one where we had close to 2,000 deaths in long-term care facilities in Ontario, Um, It's quite variable where there are homes that are well-prepared and really the whole team is ready for Wave 2, and they have, you know, sort of staffing that's in place, people that are paid well in one home, and those, once again, tend to be the municipal homes or the not-for-profit homes. And in the for-profit homes, when the system is quite different and the priority is on running it as a business rather than, you know, providing the residents the best care, there's a completely different standard. And we're once again seeing in Wave 2 that it's the for-profit homes that are mostly affected.
0: All right, Dr. Arya, this is such an important issue. Thank you so much uh, for your time, lending your uh, perspective, and uh, we'll talk down the road.
2: Thank you so much, Jeff.
0: Appreciate it. Dr. Ahmed Arya is a palliative physician who specializes in long-term care. We found out the decades-old cold case of 9-year-old Christine Jessup, murdered back in 1984, finally solved thanks to a DNA technology known as genetic genealogy. Now, it's fairly new here in Canada, and Anthony Redgrave is a forensic genealogist who actually worked with Toronto Police to crack the Jessup case and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Anthony, good afternoon. Appreciate you joining us. Hi, how are you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Uh, Could you tell us just first off in basic terms exactly how does this genetic genealogy, how does it work, and how did it help crack this case?
3: Well... Basically how it works is that, just like anyone else who would do a DNA test and upload their results, we go through the uh, significantly more complicated route of getting a forensic DNA kit made from uh, evidence left at a crime scene or uh, uh, remains of an unidentified decedent and turn those into basically the same file so we can compare them to people who are already in the database.
0: All right, this is scanned and Run Through Computers, and it looks for a match.
3: Um, well, what it does is it gives us a list of all the people who are genetic relatives of the unidentified person, um, and it shows us their their cousins, and we have to figure out how then they all fit into the puzzle together.
0: Yeah, and as we understand, uh, the DNA from the Jessup case uh, was this sent to the U.S. and processed there, Anthony. Yes. Okay, and why was that? Is that because the uh, technology just isn't available right now uh, here in Canada?
3: Um, I don't know of any labs in Canada that do whole genome forensic sequencing, and there's a few here in the United States, and this particular case was sent to the lab that I was working with at the time.
0: Got you. And uh, would you know, is it because of uh, there's been some privacy concerns uh, raised uh, regarding this and the police uh, use of this, and do we not see this technology uh, as readily used here in Canada because of that and Canadian laws, do you know?
3: As far as I know, um, the privacy laws for living people and for and for DNA use are different here than they are in Canada. But the main reason why there might not be one somewhere else is because the technology is still fairly new, and there's still a lot of there's still a lot of companies that are figuring out how to do it and setting up businesses that that can actually process whole genome forensic sequences. Um, and there's only two of them. There's only there's only two databases that we can actually use and only a couple of labs that can actually process the file. So,
0: now, How excited is law enforcement when it comes to this technology and its abilities uh, moving forward Anthony?
3: Um, it varies by department but I can tell you that when people see results like this they get very excited about it and I very frequently end up ask, being asked questions of how to get started and um, where the process begins. Um, As there's more proof of it working and providing results, especially in older cases, like this one, cases that are decades old, sometimes older, um, it's only getting more likely for older cases to get solved by this method than less, because there's more people in the databases that have opted into law enforcement matching um, to uh, provide their, their genetic information to compare to our forensic kits.
0: Yeah, and uh, I was going to ask you that about uh, cold cases in particular. Is this a bit of a uh, magic bullet, as it were, when it comes to cold cases? Can we expect that this genetic uh, genealogy is going to help uh, police uh, solve other cases as older, maybe even older than the Jessup case?
3: Any case where there is uh, biological evidence uh, associated with a crime or an unidentified decedent, as long as it goes to the right place that can that can process it, um, there's eventually a, a really good chance of, of anything being solved because the advantage here is that everyone has parents, everyone comes from somewhere, and there's so many people who are just doing their genealogical DNA tests for personal interests who are also just taking the extra step just to click that one little button that says, yes, I'll opt into law enforcement matching. Um, it's just getting more and more possible, and it will continue to be so uh, pretty rapidly as, as more news comes out about more cases being solved and more interest is. I
0: mean, could this be revolutionary? Do you think Anthony, not only for cold cases or older cases, but, uh, crimes that, uh, might be, uh, committed say in the last week.
3: It's, uh, effective for pretty much anything when it comes to more recent crimes, it's still definitely more appropriate to go through the conventional routes of using SCR testing and, uh, traditional investigative methods. We're we're the we're the closers. Um, after everything else, uh, after everything else has been tried and hasn't produced a usable lead, then it comes to us because it does take us longer, but we'll usually get there.
0: Yeah. Just finally, Anthony, and I know this is maybe not your area of expertise uh, because you're a forensic genealogist, uh, not a lawyer. But uh, what is your understanding when it comes to this DNA testing in the courtroom? I mean, is this rock solid evidence?
3: well we only provide a tip basically is how it works out because we provide a candidate for identification after our research we locate the most likely person that we think might be the id then we pass it off on the law enforcement agency where they do their due diligence to use their methods to confirm it so our our evidence doesn't necessarily get used in a courtroom yet that there's not enough uh there's not enough case history and uh academic papers written on it yet for it to stand on its own as court evidence. So STR testing, fingerprints, dental records, and interviews of witnesses are still the standard way to go. Um, And all that together is is, uh, what ends up being used in in court proceedings, but we help them get there.
0: Well certainly some interesting and exciting new technology for uh, law enforcement. Anthony, I appreciate you taking some time this afternoon walking us through it and helping us understand it a little better. Yeah, no problem. All right, have a good and safe weekend. There's Anthony Redgrave, lead forensic genealogist, and uh, the person who spent six months working with Toronto Police to help identify the killer of Christine Jessup that we got the breaking news on uh, yesterday afternoon. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.